Let's just open in prayer. Lord, I just thank you for who you are. Magnificent, perfect God who loves us and chose us and called us and redeemed us and forgave us and adopted us. And and you are truly amazing. There are no words because you're amazing. Um, But you've given us your word and you revealed yourself to us through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I just thank you today, Lord, that your spirit um, will speak through me. You've never failed. And I just thank you for that. I have confidence in what you can do through me today. And I thank you for your magnificent word of truth. And um, please give us ears to hear the truth and eyes to see the truth. And most importantly, hearts to receive the truth and, and live on it walk it out. And, um, father, just thank you for who you are in Jesus name. Amen. Um, does everybody have something to write with last week? We passed out handouts so people could write. It looks like everybody is ready today. Can y'all turn your cell phones off or down or something like that for the most part? If you have any questions, well, I don't think this week's lesson is going to be as long as last week's was. We were long last week. We do. Do you want them now? Do you? Okay. We can do that. Laura, can you pass those out for me? They're, they're two pages. They're handouts for later, so don't read them now. They're secrets now. Just... Keep our eyes on what's going on. I have a little note here. I don't know who left this. Amy lives at the manor and needs a ride to Bible study. Amy, you need a ride to the Bible study? Miss Amy? Amy, do you need a ride to the Bible study? Okay. Um, Is there anybody that could do that? She lives at the manor. Do you mind coming early, Miss Amy? It's Sunset Manor in town behind Jan's. It's a two-story. Because I can do it. You can do it? Okay. And will they? Will Lisa will do it for you? Do, does she need to pick you up out front? Amy, does Lisa need to pick you up out front? Can she just meet you out front in that drive through thing? Okay. Super. Oh, and take you. Okay, and then y'all can figure out time. Does that sound good? Does that good for you? Okay, super. Awesome. 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 Great. I have a great quote for y'all. It's from John Stott. He wrote the book Authentic Christianity. He says, We need to repent of the haughty way in which we sometimes stand in judgment upon Scripture. And must learn to sit humbly under its judgments instead. If we come to scripture with our minds made up, expecting to hear from it only an echo of our own thoughts and never the thunderclap of God's, then indeed he will not speak to us and we shall only be confirmed in our own prejudices. We must allow the word of God to confront us to disturb our security and to undermine our complacency and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. Isn't that, isn't that magnificent? Oh, that's a wonderful, wonderful quote. So may we be disturbed today by the word of God and changed by him. Ephesians chapter two, I'm going to read verses one to three. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We talked last week, but notice Paul is referring to you formerly walked and we formerly walked. He's talking about Jews formerly lived in the in their sin, but the Gentiles, you formerly lived in your sins. He's writing Ephesians to the Gentiles. So when he says you, he's referring to the Gentiles, which is anybody that's not a Jew. And when he uses the word we, he's talking about the Jews. He says that you were formerly dead in your trespasses and sins. That means spiritually dead, having fallen by the wayside, having missed the mark. I love this. Namely, the mark is the true end and scope of our lives, which is God. Is it still not good, Miss Amy? No, it's actually a little bit loud. A little bit too loud. Here it is right here. Do you want to mess with it? Is that where you came up here? No, I came for handouts. Oh, okay. I'll do it. Is it too loud a little? Tiny? No? Okay. Um, I love that the mark, sin is missing the mark, is the true end and scope of our whole lives, which is God. God is the true end and scope of our lives. And sin is anything that misses that mark. That is what sin is. Verse 2 says, we formerly walked according to the course of this world. Last week, we talked about the word walk. And that means the manner of our life, the day in and day out way we live our life in this world. It's how you normally live your life. That's the way you walk. That's what it's referring to. The definition of the world just kills me. It's just, I don't know. It always hits me so hard. Here's what it means. And, And for those of you that weren't here, when I give definitions, it's from the original Greek. It's not from Webster's. It's not something I have decided it means. It's from the Greek. If it is from Webster's, and I do use that sometimes, I will tell you that's from Webster's. So the definition is this present world and the present order of things as opposed to the kingdom of Christ. It's always used, listen to this, with the idea of transience and worthlessness. Transience and worthlessness. The world is transient. Things don't stay the same. Um, It's worthless. The things of the world are transient and worthless. The world is the seat of cares. Is that not true? It's the seat of cares. Temptations and irregular desires. Ooh. It says we've, I know, that kind of, ouch, that sure speaks about my life. It says we formerly lived our lives in transience and worthlessness due to the world's temptations and irregular desires. But is that true or do you presently live in the world? With worthless desires and transience. Are you giving in to worthless temptations and in regular desires? Or do you live for God's kingdom? Amy Lively spoke at woman to woman dinner, uh, not this month, but last month. And she used the term as above, so below. And what that means is that we need to live our lives based on the way God's kingdom operates above. 
and let it operate in our life here below. Let the kingdom principles operate in our life below. Surrendering to the power of the Holy Spirit and his desire to accomplish God's will in you. Guarding yourself from the world's worthless temptations and irregular desires. Verse 2 also tells us that the world is run by the prince of the power of the air. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The enemy is hard at work today. He's really stepping up his game. Do, you, do, do people seem more mean to you? I, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's absolutely crazy. He is hard at work. He blinds people, even believers, to the worthlessness of this world. They honestly cannot see evil at work. I don't know if any of you are on Facebook, but some of the, the garbage that is said to other people, I don't think they have any idea or see what they are doing. But it, it's so apparent to me day in and day out, um, the, the power of the enemy that's at work and is blinding. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So that they cannot see. They literally cannot see. Do you wonder why people attack you? It's because they cannot see the light of the gospel that is displayed in the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God. They cannot see it. They are blind. They have no idea. But believers can be blinded. They can be lured away by the enemy. 2 Corinthians 11.3. That 2 Corinthians 11.3 says. Paul said I'm afraid. That as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, that's how he deceives us girls, our thoughts. Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So we know unbelievers are led astray. We know they're blind, but we can be led astray. And we have to really guard about that. Uh, Verse 2 says, the enemy is called the prince of the power of the air. I want to read a comment for you. Matthew Henry says... The air is represented as the seat of Satan's kingdom. And it was the opinion of both Jews and the heathens that the air is full of spirits. And that they exercise and exert themselves there. The devil seems to have some power by God's permission in the lower region of the air. There he is at hand to tempt men. And to do as much mischief to the world as he can. But it is the comfort and joy of God's people that he who is head over, what did we say last week? All things. And what does all mean? All. All. (laughs) God is head over all things to the church. He has conquered the devil and and has him on a chain. But wicked men are slaves to Satan, for they walk according to him. They conform their lives and their actions to the will and pleasure of this great usurper. The course and tenor of their lives are according to his suggestions. And in compliance with his temptations, they are subject to him, led captive by him, whereupon he is called the God of this world and the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Obedience. Um, Satan rules in the air above us. The air is defined this way. The area immediately above the earth. Satan and his demons rule the power of the air, which is the area immediately above the earth. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says that believers will meet Jesus in the air. 
And that Jesus will penetrate this area in the air to deliver his own from the earth at some point in time. So I used to think that the spiritual realm and God and heaven and demons and all that was way, way, like way above us, way above us. I believe now it might be just right here, like the sky, like right above Clearview or right in this room, right above us in the air. I don't know that that's true, but from my studies, that's my takeaway. That there is this great war taking place right above us. So we have forces of good and we have forces of evil. And that daily we are caught up in a cosmic battle between angels and demons and principalities. We're going to discuss spiritual warfare in chapter 6. So that's in about four weeks. But suffice it to say, we need to wake up to what's going around us. To stand. We need to fight with God's power for God's kingdom. Let me give you an example. Every Monday, I'm caught up in a battle because of the class that I'm going to teach on Tuesdays. Every Monday, and it could go into Sundays or Saturdays or Fridays. I recognize it, but I can tend to get really depressed, um, really down, have those doubts in my mind. I have no doubt Satan is whispering in my ear because it's always the same words. You know, who are you to teach? You don't know anything. You're too old. Nobody wants to hear you. You became a Christian late in life. They know more than you do. What do you know? Nobody wants to hear that. So I've learned, I don't, I don't even listen. I hear it, but I don't listen to it and obey it and act on it. It would be like if someone was in this room screaming obscenities, I would ask them to quit and then I would shut the door. So I might hear mumbling. Of course we wouldn't because there's a window there, but you get that idea. You can hear the voice of the enemy and the voice of the flesh at work. But I'm not going to heed it. I'm not going to let it bring me down. But I do have to fight. So if y'all ever think about me on a Monday, I would appreciate your prayers while I'm writing this, these lessons. Uh, but that's, a, that's an example of standing in this spiritual, against those spiritual forces. The sons of disobedience is an interesting definition to me. That's in verse 2, um, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. It says disobedient with an unwillingness. An unwillingness to be persuaded. That just hits me right between the eye. To be unbelieving is to oppose the gracious word and purpose of God. Isn't that great? It's just a very clear definition. This describes all unbelievers down through the centuries. But I see the reality of this definition describing believers today. I mean, this just makes sense today that there is truly an unwillingness to be persuaded. I am unwilling to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Don't speak to me about that. And if you do speak to me about it, then there's name calling. You're a bigot. You're a racist. You're whatever. You're opposed. But um, it's no longer a polite rejection. You know, years ago, you might proclaim your faith or say something about Jesus. And we have a neighbor and I can tell by, you know, some people listen and look and they're not interested, but they're, they're, they're looking and some people are very, you know, they won't even look at you. Our neighbor, I know there's no interest. He's very polite, but there's a, there's a, there's a wall and he just goes, but he loves us. He loves us and he knows we love us and he has a lifestyle that Jesus died for. And I love this man and I pray for him every day that he will Um, that God will open his eyes one day and he will no longer have an unwillingness to be persuaded. Did you have something quick, Vicki? 
opposed. Uh, The first one is disobedient with an unwillingness to be persuaded. To be unbelieving is to oppose the gracious word and purpose of God. And thank you for raising your hand. Last week we said if you, if you want a definition or something, want me to repeat something, just raise your hand and I'll try to back up. Because there's a lot of information here. Verse 2, um, verses 2, 1 through 3, open by telling us who we were before Jesus. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Formerly walked in our sins according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit, little s, not the Holy Spirit, that now works in the sons of disobedience. We lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh. We were children of wrath. Verse 2.12 tells us we were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants and promise. We had no hope without God and were far off from God. Compare that with last week, how we opened chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. We were blessed, we're chosen, we're loved, we're adopted, we're redeemed, we're forgiven. We are lavished. We are lavished with grace. That's a tsunami of grace is coming your way every single day. Do you want a grace forecast? There's a tsunami coming your way and my way today of grace. God will not withhold his grace from you. Compare that with the children of wrath who have no hope and they are far away from God and they are living like it. And isn't that heartbreaking? What brought about this glorious change? We have one group that is far from God and this other group that is blessed by God. Not only blessed, lavished by God. Well, verses 4 through 18 tell us. So let me read verses 4 through 10. But God... I love the word but God, but God, but God, when we were children of wrath, when we were lost, when we were sinners, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ by grace. You've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one should boast. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ah, I love this. It's so cool. But God, I love those words. But God, I'm here today. Maybe some of you read a prayer request earlier. We'll talk about it. If anybody asks me, I'm fine to talk about it. And so my words today are, but God, but God, But God, but God is at work in spite of what is happening in my family today. What about yours? But God, but God. (sighs) Paul is saying Satan had power over us, the sons of disobedience who indulged our fleshly lust and that we were worthy of wrath. But God, who was rich in mercy, listen to this definition. You're going to love this one. God abounds. In loving and benevolent pity 
for the misery of the sinner Ah, because of his great love. Is that just, let me repeat that. God, mercy is that God abounds in loving and benevolent pity for the misery of the sinner. And why does he do that? Because of his great love, meaning his exceedingly abundant love with which he loves us. Is that not just too much? This phrase, with which he loves us, I love this. I, I wouldn't, I, I just thought it would be love, the, 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 the definition we've been talking about, an unconditional love, that he gives you what you need, not necessarily what you want, but this is something different. With which he loves us means he esteems us, finds joy in us, and he chose to show us favor and goodwill for Pete's sake, he esteems us, finds joy in us, and chose to show us favor and goodwill. We talked last week, and I'll just say it again. This is all about Jesus. It's all about God. It's all about the Spirit at work in us so that we can appropriate this magnificent salvation that God ordained through his Son, Jesus Christ. It's absolutely unbelievable. Do you doubt that God loves you? Do you struggle with that? I had lunch with a sweet friend before I left Dallas, and um, she's a doctor. She's a vet. She's brilliant, and she's sweet. Her husband died a year or so ago, but she had a terribly hard marriage. And she just looked at me in the middle of lunch out of nowhere and, and tears running down her little cheeks, and she said, Do you ever struggle to believe God loves you? And I said, I sure have. I absolutely have. But ladies, if do any of you struggle with that, I just want to challenge you for a minute. If you have struggled with that, as I have. In fact, let me just give you an example. Um, this was a long time ago in the um, mid-90s. I got depressed. I've had a history of, of depression in my life. And um, thank goodness haven't been for about 20 or so years. But um, I went to a counselor, and I was very suicidally depressed, actually. And she said... Does God love you? And I said, not right, I, I, not right now. I think he used to, but I'm pretty sure he doesn't right now. And she said, and can you tell me a scripture that you base that on? Huh. <laughs> I don't know. Do you know of one I said? And she said, no, because there isn't one. God doesn't wake up in the morning and based on how you're acting or how you're living your life, decide, you know, today I don't love her as much. I am uh, not loving her today. She didn't do very good yesterday. And so today, not happening. In fact, she's going to have to work her way back to me. That's how this is going to go down. I'm just sick and tired of this. That doesn't happen. God loves you as much as he's always loved you. It never changes. He does not change. If you are a woman who battles with believing that God loves you, I want to challenge you. Perhaps you're basing that on works. You're thinking it's because I'm not good. He could love me more if I was just better. He wouldn't. He can't. He doesn't. He loves you. Is it possible? Here's my challenge for you if you struggle to believe God loves you. Is it possible to just believe, not feel? I'm not asking you to feel. I'm asking you to believe, decide to believe that God loves you. Could you do that? Could you decide to make a decision based on what God's word says 
you know what? I'm going to believe God loves me. I'm not going to worry about not feeling it. I'm just deciding to believe it because that's what it says. Could you do that? Let me repeat. He exceedingly abundantly loves you. He esteems you. He finds joy in you. He chooses to show you favor and goodwill. Let those words just seep into your being. Anybody here like crispy English muffins? I had one today. Crispy. I like them really crispy. And when they're really crispy, they have all those little holes in there. You know, just picture for a moment. You have a really crispy, hot uh, English muffin right in front of you. And you decide, I'm going to pour butter, I mean, uh, honey on this. At first, I would put butter. Thank you. That's why I said that. But then I would add honey to this mixture. And just picture, you're drizzling the honey on this hot, crispy English muffin full of holes, right? And it seeps down into all those nooks and crannies and crevices, right? And now what if I told you, oh my gosh, Susan, we don't have enough honey for the rest of the group. Could you give us your honey? Could you get that honey off of your muffin? Could you? I mean, maybe you could scrape a little bit, you know, and and give a little drop to somebody, but you're not going to get a tablespoon of honey back out off that muffin. Am I right? Right. Could you let his love just picture your heart with all the crevices, all the brokenness, all the holes, all the emptiness. Let his love like honey, like a bomb, just seep deeply into your heart by decision, not because you feel like it. But decide, I'm going to believe he loves me and just let that truth seep into your heart and don't ever let it come off again. There's a bond there when that honey bonds with that English muffin. Let his love bond and seep into every hole in your heart and mind so that it never, you could not get it off of your heart or off of your mind. It's there to stay. Because you've made a decision to believe that your God loves you. And it's a bond that's so firm and so clear and so permanent that no one, especially the enemy, can't ever steal that away from you. Not ever. It's time to believe God loves you. One of the handouts is that. That he exceedingly abundantly loves me. God esteems me. He finds joy in me. He chose To show me favor and goodwill. If you don't believe God loves you, then take that hand out. Rewrite it about 10,000 times. Say it to yourself. Tape it to your mirror. Tape it to your car dashboard. Tape it to your computer. Let's start living as women who are loved and know they're loved. And then guess what happens? You begin to have confidence. And guess what you do? You show everybody else love because you've got a plethora of love. And it just overflows. Your cup is so full. You don't withhold anything from anybody. You can't help but just splash love on everybody when you bump into them. Because you're so loved. That's the way this works. Isn't that so good? We could just camp out there, couldn't we? And if you decide to believe it, even though you don't feel it, I promise you, I'm making a stand and a promise to you right now. If you decide to believe it, a day will come when you feel it. I promise you his truth will change your belief and your feelings will follow. Verse 5 says that even when we were dead in our transgression, in other words, he knew every single sin you committed. How do you know he loves you? Well, right here. He died for you 
even in spite of all the sins that you have committed. Not only does he know all the sins that you have committed, are committing, and will commit, he also knows your thoughts. Now, that I think I'd rather him know my sins and not all my thoughts. You know, let's leave out the thoughts. That's really ugly. Oh, my gosh. I, oh, oh, my gosh. My friend here hears most of my thoughts. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't filter them with some people. I just share it all. Bless her heart. <laughs> um, but our thoughts are pretty scary. But when, not after, when we were dead to Christ and the gospel and living a sinful, fruitless life, then he made you alive together with Christ. That's how much he loves you. That's how we know he loves us. We didn't clean up first. He took us in our worthless state. You were spiritually dead. Now you're spiritually alive because you've been born again. In other words, we know he loves us because he died for us, knowing full well what wretched, wretched creatures we are. He, had no, he has no illusions about you. Years and years ago, I used to watch The Bachelor. And I'm ashamed to say that, but that's true. <laughs> And I, I figured out, here's how they catch you and, and keep you to keep watching that stupid show. Because they would have The Bachelor, all handsome, you know, and they would have all these girls. And one, and one of them would be so cute and, you know, she'd be flirting and he'd be, you could just see him falling for it. Like, yeah, you know, wow, she's awesome. And then here's, here's what they did. Here was the hook to get you coming back. Then they would go back to the place where the women all lived for this period of time. <laughs> and that same woman that was so adorable and so cute and he was falling for her. She was a witch. And she would be mean and horrible and just curse at the other women. And just, you would see the duplicity and her, oh my gosh, it was just like, no, no, surely he can see through this awful woman. Surely he's not going to fall for her. So I had to tune in every week to make sure he didn't fall for the witch. And so then I realized, oh, wait a minute, they're doing this on purpose. So I quit watching it. But see, the same with Jesus. He saw all those Everything about you. Just imagine if the bachelor had gone back to his room at night and turned on the TV to watch the live screen of what was going on. He wouldn't have chosen the, the cute girl that was being a liar, which would he? No. But Jesus did. He tunes in. He saw the whole thing and he chose you with anyway. And he died for you anyway. And he seated you with him in heavenly places. Remember last week? We talked about the rank. Jesus is seated with God in the heavenly places. The word seated means a rank. He's above how many things? All. All things, all powers, all principalities, all, all of it. That you can, every name that is named, he's above it. And where are we seated? With him. With him. Do we have anything to fear from Satan? That helped me so much this week as I struggled. The enemy's at work. He's trying to destroy me. Didn't want me to come today. Didn't want me to be able to study yesterday to prepare for today. Guess what? That helped me to know, hey, I'm seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's a rank, a position. The enemy doesn't have anything on me. Can he torment me and bug me and scare me and snap at me? He can do that. But he has no power to do one thing to me. And if God does give him power, I still have the victory. I have power over any, anything that he could form, any weapon he could form against me. 
Ephesians 1.21 says Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named. Verse 2.7 says that God made us alive to show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus in the ages to come. That's why he ordained that we would be saved by grace through faith. Yes, ma'am. By verse 2 7. So, do you see chapter 2? Yeah. And then going down, do you see verse 7? Okay, well, I thought we had a different book because you said verse. Not gotcha. Verse okay, gotcha. You Thank you for speaking up. I love questions like that. That's awesome. So, you're not sitting there confused. So, he seated us with Christ in order to show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness. Remember last week we talked about the amazing kindness of God. I've heard people say, well, I really like to pray to Jesus and I like to think about Jesus, but I don't like to think about God. He's mean. No, he's not. You don't understand God if you feel that way. If you've seen Jesus and his kindness and his compassion, then you've seen God. He is kind. We are saved by grace through faith and not as a result of works. God ordained that we would be saved. That that is meaning that we have eternal life by grace. And that demonstrates the surpassing riches of his grace and his kindness towards us. I did not understand amazing grace until I was about 31 years of age. I want to give you a really short testimony. I was raised in a religion that I, I believed I had to work my way to God. I had to do certain things, go to church, say certain prayers, go through certain motions. I had no idea what the Bible said about how to go to heaven, how to be saved. I thought it was by works. I was also told that there's certain sins you can do, and if you don't confess them, you will go to hell if you die before those are confessed. Well, the problem was that really bothered me, but no one could tell me exactly what those sins were. I knew murder was one of them and adultery. You know, some some were obvious, but some weren't so obvious. And as a 15-year-old, I wondered if French kissing was one of those sins. I mean, that was a big deal. I mean, I don't want to, I wanted to do that, but I thought, I don't want to go to hell for that. So I asked the the higher up people and they all said, well, the good, the way to handle that is just not do it. And I thought, hmm, there must be something really special about that. (laughs) So then I thought, well, I'll just go ask my mom who had been a widow for quite some time. And I said, mom, it's French kissing a what they called a mortal sin. And she said, well, what is French kissing? That should have told me (laughs) right there that there was going to be a problem. And I told her what it was and she went, oh, (gasps) remember my mother, if you went to the prayer class, you know, she always had this look on her face. Well, that was magnified at this particular moment in time. And she went, oh, it has to be. I never let your father do that to me. And I thought, oh, this must be really fun. And then I felt really sorry for my dad. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Isn't that funny? But I didn't know how to get to heaven. And the one thing that I did know, my dad died when I was really young. And uh, my mother had her issues with alcohol, as did my dad. 
And so my issue was not alcohol or drugs, but it was men. I thought a man could make me happy. I believed it. Uh, you know, Cinderella was like a documentary to me. Cinderella and the Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, those were documentaries. It was, it was a lesson to tell you how to live happily, what? Ever after, right? And, and how could you do that? Well, when the prince rode up on his white horse, right? I really, I didn't really expect him to come on a white horse. In fact, when I met Gary Dittrich, he had a motorcycle, which in case you've wondered, motorcycles are the next best thing to having a white horse. And, uh, <laughs> oh gosh, he was cute. <laughs> oh, anyway, I was married twice and divorced twice by the age of 30. I had three children, an 11-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 3-year-old. And I was a mess. I was a dysfunctional mess, actually, when I met Gary Dittrich, my current husband. He was a believer. He wasn't a strong believer. And he was only looking for the next woman. And that was fine with me because I was only looking for the next man. But I was a mess. Um, I did hope he would marry me, however, which was happened to be before I actually knew his name, which is true, even though that's hilariously funny. <laughs> That shows you how dysfunctional I was. And, um, oh, so sick. But a year later, after seeing this guy, um, I realized, oh, my gosh, he's really not going to marry me. And I really got depressed. And I got really suicidally depressed. And um, I didn't have anybody. My parents were both dead by this time. My aunts and uncles had kind of distanced themselves from the crazy woman, me. And um, life was overwhelming. I, I really didn't know what the heck I was doing. And I just knew I was desperate. And now I realized, oh my gosh, this guy isn't going to marry me. And um, so one night, it took a long time. I planned, planned out my suicide for a couple of months. And so one night on a Friday night, uh, May 7th, 1983, so that's been 35 years ago, over 35. That's so cool. Um, but on that Friday night, I decided to take my life. But not being very smart, I failed, which is such a blessing. <laughs> It's funny, but it, it is true. I got in the car and I thought to myself, oh gosh, if I turn it on, do I, am I supposed to leave the windows up or down? I don't really know. So I decided in my little logical brain that rolling them up would contain all the carbon monoxide in the car with me, which that's not how you do it. So after an hour and a half, I got frustrated and mad that I'm that stupid. And so I got out of the car. But the next night I was going to do it. I figured out what I'd done wrong and I was writing my suicide note out to God. And um, this is what I said to God, because I loved God. That, that was not a problem. I always loved God. I wanted to get to God. I just could not figure out how to get to God. And I said, God, I do not understand. All I ever wanted was one man to love me. But no matter what I did, it was never enough. And God spoke to me, not audibly, but I heard it in my heart. And what he said was, that's right. What you did was never enough. But what I did by sending Jesus to die for you, that was enough. Now, no one had ever shared the gospel with me until this very moment in time. I have no idea how I could grasp that I am saved by grace through faith. But I did. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. And I understood it was a free gift. I, I didn't see this verse. I didn't even know about this verse. But I understood it was a free gift. And I realized, oh, that's why Jesus died. I'd seen him on a cross, but I had no idea why he was up there. And I got it. And I literally became a new creature. I knew I was a new person from that moment forward. I didn't know how to live differently. So it took me two more years of, of chasing Mr. Gary Dittrich before I finally realized I'm going to put God first. 
And I'm going to open this word of God and I'm going to read it. And if it says don't do something, then I won't do it. And if it says do it, then I will do it. Um, But I've got to put God first. Jesus has got to be all to me. And although I would prefer flesh and blood, that this was honestly true. I'm going to let you, Jesus, be my husband. But I'd, I actually prefer flesh and blood. But if you can make me love you more than flesh and blood, then then I'm, I want you to do that. And he did do that. This word changed me. We were, I didn't date. I didn't see Gary for about a year. And, and literally had no desire to see Gary. Jesus so changed me by his impeccable, perfect word. And a year later, Gary came back, and I was changed and different, and he wanted to date me, and then he wanted to marry me. And we've been married almost 32 years. So God is good. (laughs) Yes, ever after. I got that good-looking guy. But what I really got was Jesus Christ. By grace, through faith. That's the gift. It wasn't Gary. It is Jesus. All of us can have Jesus as a gift. By grace, through faith. In fact, my prayer was the night before my wedding, Lord, if I could put anybody, Gary or anybody else, number one in my life, that I don't want to get married. Because I know what I am. I am a desperate woman. And and now I'm not with Jesus. But if anybody else, if I try to link myself to another person, I will be depressed again and suicidal. I know my own heart. And so I always told the Lord, don't ever let Gary Dittrich be number one. And... Jesus is number one, and Gary loves that about me. That's a good thing. Uh, Verse 10 tells us that we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship means that which is made. That which is made. The Greek word is, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, I believe it's poema, which is the word for poem that we use. We, the church, you and I, and the church collectively, we are God's poem. We are God's poem. This is a quote from Matt Caps with Gospel Coalition. He says, just as a poem contains the manifest design and intention of the author, God has made himself evident to all mankind with the powerful poem of the universe. God manifests himself to the universe through his workmanship, through his poem. Romans 1.20, I'm sure you've heard this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they're without excuse. You've heard that, I'm sure. I always thought that meant through what has been made meant Mountains and rivers and trees and birds and the beautiful things of nature. The clouds that that a person cannot miss God when they just look outside and see what's been made by God. That's what I always thought that verse meant. And it does mean that. But it also means you and me. We are also his workmanship. Yes, the clouds and the sky and mountains, there is workmanship. You and I are his workmanship. What he created is also the word workmanship so that others see in us his invisible attributes. We were created to be new in Christ so others can see Christ in us. That's convicting. Do you live in such a way that others see Jesus in you? Dwight Pentecost, maybe some of you remember Dr. Dwight Pentecost. He's a Dallas uh, theologian who... um, 
taught at Dallas Theological Seminary, and he used to preach here at Clearview. He had a house, and he died, I don't know how many years ago, five or six, Bobby maybe, lived in his 90s. He gave a great sermon. I bet you remember it, Bobby. And he said, I remember he sat on a little chair, and he said, theology is the study of God. Theology is the study of God. If you were the only theology... Your neighbor, our wife, our co-worker, our child had, meaning their knowledge of God. How good would their theology be? Oh, bam! Oh, that kills me. I started bawling in church. Do you get what I'm saying, what he said? If no one had read a Bible, no one had been to church, and you were the only method by which they were going to know God, how good would they know God? How well would they know God? Wow. Francis of Assisi said, it is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking, remember that's the word how we live our daily life, is preaching. I have no use to show up today and preach God's word to you unless I'm living it out. Yes, ma'am. Oh, did y'all hear that? Joni said that a little church she attends the over the door as you exit, it says you are entering your mission field. Wow, that just gives me chills. You are now in, that's it. That's it. That is it. Verse 10 says, we were created in Christ for what? Good works. The word created means to create or produce from nothing, girls. Nothing. God created Adam out of nothing. He created us spiritually out of nothing when we were born again. It's the same thing. I I marvel at Adam's, you know, just created out of dust. We are new creatures. According to 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says we are new creatures in Christ. The word new means a new kind, an unprecedented kind of creation made out of nothing. God created Adam out of dust, but he he created us as spiritual creatures A completely unprecedented kind. We should marvel at our new birth, the new creation. We were worthless, dead creatures headed for eternal wrath. Now we are a completely new kind of creature made out of nothing, from nothing. And now we're something in Christ. And why were we made? So that we could walk in the good works that he prepared beforehand. Again, walk is the way you live your life. What are some good works that we are to walk in? Walk by faith, walk by the Spirit, walk worthy of your calling, walk in Christ, walk in light. Jesus is the light. Be holy and blameless. That's only a few. We're going to be rewarded for our good works. Have y'all ever um, had any teaching on the judgment seat of Christ? I'm just going to explain that real quickly. I love this teaching. It's 1 Corinthians 3. Verses 10 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. According to the grace of God which was given to me, 
Again, we're looking at grace. It's all grace. As a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he receives a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. He himself shall be saved, yet as through fire. So let me explain this to you. Here's what he's saying. The foundation is Christ. If we're saved by grace through faith, Jesus Christ is our foundation. Now we're going to build upon it. We're going to do good works on this foundation of Christ. Right? And if it's gold, silver, and precious stones, we'll be rewarded. It won't burn up. If it's wood, hay, and straw, it will burn up and there will be no reward. And reward is not just for you. It also glorifies God. So that's, to me, the main thing here. But so what are good works? What's uh, precious stones and silver and gold? That's anything done through the Spirit of God with eternal things. They represent eternal things. Wood, hay, and straw represents the transient things, the fleshly things, the things that will pass away. Does that make sense? So when I am doing what I do with Christ... That's going to be rewarded, whether it's changing a diaper, whether it's teaching a Bible study, whether it's helping the poor. If I'm doing that with Christ and his strength for him, that he's going to reward that. If I decide, and I think we could all maybe take note in our minds, that I want to build a kingdom. I want to have a, a big mega church. I want to do things. I want to be honored and revered. You know what? That's not going to be rewarded. Jesus isn't pleased with that. In fact... John 5, uh, 5, I'm sorry, 15, John 15, 5 says, if we abide in him, and I always do it like this, like you're just connected. If you abide in him and he abides in you, you're going to bear much fruit. That means good works. Apart from him, you can do what? Nothing. So if you're with Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to do everything and you'll be rewarded for it. Those are the good works. And if you're not... No matter what you're doing, it's as good as nothing. We can't do anything through our own strength. Even Jesus said he couldn't do anything through apart from the Father. It's all about Jesus. It's all about God. It's all about the power of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says all scripture. There we go with our superlative again. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for what? Every good work. And some of you were in the Bible study we had on prayer. And what did I say? If you're not in God's word, you're in what? Let's say it bigger and better. What are you in if you're not in God's word? Big fat trouble. <laughs> you're in big fat trouble. If you don't know God's word, if you're not in God's word, it says right here, this is what's going to equip you for every good work. So if you're not in God's work, word, you're not going to be equipped. You're going to be in big fat trouble. We need to get let this word train us. 
so that we can know how to walk in the good works. I do want to say this, though, girls. This is all about grace. This is not about salvation. You cannot work your way to God. It is not good work, so you will make it to heaven. How do you make it to heaven? By grace through faith, not works. The works are just to demonstrate I'm in Christ. I'm a new creation. And I'm going to live for him in his strength. But I wasn't saved by my works. I was taught wrong. Maybe you were taught wrong. Ephesians 2, 11 through 12. Let me read those verses. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. Again, we're talking about Jews and Gentiles, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Anytime we see the word therefore, we want to know what went before that. So what went before that? What it's saying is because you were saved by grace, remember, call to mind that once you were not saved. You were a Gentile. You were separate from Christ, apart from Christ, excluded from the community of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. You had no hope. You were without God. I can really identify. You have no hope, no expectation of obtaining the promises of God. Unlike the Israelites, they had an expectation of obtaining God's promises. But the Gentiles were destitute without God, devoid of reason, forgetful of God, without divine help, excluded from communion with God. Paul is saying because you were saved by grace, it's important to remember who you once were. Do you ever do that? Do you ever stop and think who you were before Christ? Not blessed, not chosen, not adopted, not loved, not lavished with grace. Do you ever do that? Paul is telling us it's a good thing to do that. I did a retreat in Michigan once years ago. It was a really large retreat. And they said, we're so happy that you're coming during this time because we have all of our missionaries in town. So the husbands and the wives are all here and the wives are going to get to come to the retreat. Do you mind doing a portion of the retreat um, with the missionary wives? And we want to do a question and answer session. And I said, well, sure, that would be fun. <clears throat> so there's a big, there's a big stage <laughs> in all these chairs. I'm, I'm, at, I'm at the far, like facing you, I'm at the far left on my left it would be your right, I guess. And all these other chairs, six or seven women were in front of me. And, there, and then down at that other end was the MC person. So <clears throat> she's real sweet and all these sweet little missionary wives. So she does this. Um, we'd like to ask y'all some questions about your life and um so i'll just start with you um just answer this question if you will um just tell us about your family life and how you grew up would you do that and so then everybody <laughs> so everybody went and took their little turn and so it was similar to well um my dad was a pastor and my mom stayed at home and she was it was so wonderful. My family was so precious. And I received Christ when I was three. And I've been receiving, you know, serving him ever since. And then the next woman, well, um, I had such a good family. And my parents were blah, 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 blah. You know, just went down the line. And then it gets to Debbie. And I said, um, well, am I? 
I'm trying not to laugh. And I said, well, my parents were both alcoholics. And, um, and I was very insecure. And my dad died when I was 11. And then my mother was worse of an alcoholic. And I didn't know Christ. And the audience kind of went, like, oh, my gosh, what do I do with this information? So then the lady gets up again. And she said, thank you. all Let's ask another question. I'd like to know for the next question. Um, tell us about your Christmas memories, your favorite Christmas memories. And so, well, in my family, we would pray first. And then we would go cut a tree as a family together. And then we would make decorations. And, you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating. I'm sure you can imagine. But it was almost like that. It was, you know, seven little wonderful stories. <laughs> and then it gets to Debbie who says... Well, um, <laughs> I said, I, I honestly, until I got married to Gary, not the other two marriages, I don't remember a great Christmas. The, it, my dad, every holiday, birthdays, Easter, Christmas, he would get drunk and then he would leave. <laughs> I'm so glad you're laughing, Lisa. It's hilarious. I mean, it's not, but it is hilarious. And what's hilarious is the contrast. And so... He would leave, bless his heart. He was depressed. He had troubles and issues, and he would always leave. And I wouldn't know, is he coming back in an hour or a week? And neither did mom, so then she'd cry. So I don't remember a, I don't have a good Christmas memory. It was always just kind of like, oh, what's going to happen today? Something terrible. So everybody, again, is in the audience going, they don't know, what to, they don't know that they can laugh with that. So then she asked another question. Thank you. Okay, I'd like to know about your marriage. Tell us how you met your husband, you know. So it was, well, we were both in seminary and um, studying the Word of God. And I looked into his eyes and saw the Holy Spirit. No, I don't know. I'm making all that up. But it was all these precious stories. And then it gets to Debbie, and everybody is just, like, waiting to be slapped emotionally, you know, like, bracing themselves. Oh, my gosh, what is she going to say? I can't take it. And I said, I started laughing like Lisa, just uncontrollably. And I said, oh my gosh, y'all have got to laugh. It's okay. This is the contrast here is crazy. It's okay. I'm okay. I'm healed. But I met my third husband in a bar and I was not a believer. And we rode off on a motorcycle and I won't tell you what we did next, but trust me, you don't want to hear it. I didn't even know his name. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. But here's what I said to those women, and here's do what? <laughs> yeah, we did. I will tell you, we French kissed. <laughs> oh my gosh! Here's what I said to that group of women, and here's what I'm going to say to you: It doesn't matter if you were horrible at 31 and obviously in need of a savior. I, it was obvious I needed a savior. I still need a savior. But it doesn't matter. These precious women who accepted Christ at you know, these young ages and lived precious, magnificent lives by what? The grace of God, not by works. We all needed Jesus. Without Jesus, that precious woman here who had lived a precious, godly life could not go to heaven apart from God's grace. Do you get this? It's by grace, through faith, that you're saved and not as a result of works, not as a result of being a pastor's child, not as a result of waiting to be pure until you get married. It's not a result of that. It is a result of what? Grace through faith. That's what it is. And so we, it's important to remember who you were. 
Yes, somebody has a question. Yes. Yes, love much. Lisa, is it Lisa? I can't see your name tag. It is so true. I think it is so true. These, I always think of the, like the Grand Canyon. My heart was a Grand Canyon, just scooped out, scooped out, scooped out, empty, dry, deep. And Jesus Christ fills it to this deep measure that is amazing because people had hurt and hurt and hurt it. And now Jesus has healed it and fills it. And I do love much and I'm actually thankful for my life. But whatever your life is, it's important to remember who you were, not the specific sins. I want you to listen to this. But your identity. You had another nature. You were a sinner. You missed the mark. The true end of scope and scope of your life, which is God. And I don't care if you came at 31 like me or at age four, pure and innocent. You were by nature a creature worthy of God's wrath. Are you with me on that? We need to think about that because if we don't ever ponder that and remember that according to Paul, we won't be able to re- to understand and grasp the reality of our magnificent salvation. Our nature was so hideous that we were worthy of death. Even if you came to Jesus at 4, you had a hideous nature. I'm from Texas. In Texas, They say, what did they say, Judy? Uh, The only good snake is a what snake? A dead snake. Do you? A dead snake. (laughs) So picture with me a rattlesnake. I, I have a firearm. If I see a rattlesnake, hear a rattlesnake, I'm not going to wait to see if he's a good rattlesnake or a bad rattlesnake. He is worthy of death simply because he is a rattlesnake right do you are you with me there and what if i was up high somewhere and looking down and could see very carefully some rattlesnake giving birth to her baby snakes little slivery slimy creatures they they hadn't done anything they've just hatched out of their eggs but they're still deadly and if i could and had the means i would kill not just the mama i would kill all of them Thinking I was doing a good thing. Because they're worthy of death. They are dangerous. We were... Do you get this? You had a nature that was worthy of death. Which says... Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. That's it right there. That's the problem. It's a heart problem. Not a specific immorality problem like me. A specific sin problem. It's it's your nature. It is your heart. And Jesus saved you and made you a new creation. A new creation. It's important to understand who you were before Christ. You were formally separate from Christ. You there was no hope without Christ, and you were without God in the world. Because without remembering, you cannot really appreciate that you're a woman saved by grace. I want to say one last thing on this issue. I've heard women say, I wish I had a better testimony. What that really means is an interesting story. People say, oh, I love your testimony. I guess that means it is an interesting story. Our testimony, my testimony isn't what I've done. My testimony is Jesus. 
And we all have a better testimony because the better testimony, the fabulous testimony, the magnificent testimony is I've been saved by grace through faith. That's the testimony. It's Jesus. And so remember who you were so you can know who you are and appreciate it and what Jesus did for you. Verse 13 says, we formerly were far off from God, but now in Christ you've been brought near. How? How have we been brought near? By the blood of Christ. Not by good works, by the blood and the death and uh, the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you struggle feeling far off from God? That's a truth that's hard to grasp, that you're close to God. But you were formerly far off from God, and now you're near through the blood of Jesus Christ. The enemy's most deadly lie is that you are far away from God, and he wants to isolate you from others. No one loves me. No one needs me. No one cares about me, and that is a lie. Do not believe that lie. This word right here tells you now you're near. You've been brought near. We have access through his blood, not our efforts. Not through church, only through his blood. I want to read Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace. He made both groups, that's the Jews and the Gentiles, into one. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jesus is our peace. That word means he's our welfare. I love this. Our every kind of good. Isn't that a great thing to say? Jesus is my every kind of good. He's my prosperity. Luke 179 says Jesus is the way of peace. And this word peace is shalom, which is the way of happiness. And it means wholeness, happiness, abundance. It's just all encompassing. Shalom is. Jesus, there's a peace in your very soul. That's what Jesus gives you. Not dependent on your circumstances or your bank account or your health or your children's health. Dependent on Jesus. There is a peace that Jesus gives that is dependent on nothing but Jesus Christ alone. Verse 14 says that Jesus broke down the dividing wall. And that's a wall between Jews and Gentiles. In the temple between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, there was a physical barrier, an actual wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. Paul was, at the time of this writing, under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial because he was falsely accused by the Jews of taking a Gentile into the temple past the wall of separation, which divides Jew and Gentile. Paul made it clear that in Jesus, that wall is gone. That wall is gone. There's no dividing wall. Verse 15 tells us there's enmity between us and God. That means hostility. And the enmity is the law of commandments. The law of commandments. Jesus abolished the word uh, 
let's see, in verse 15, when it says he abolished in his flesh, that means he abolished, destroyed, and made a complete cessation of, not a temporary ceasing, but a complete ceasing of the dividing wall or the enmity. And again, that enmity means hostility between you and God. What is the hostility? What's the law? What is the enmity? It's the law. It's works. It's works. The law is the legal system that no one could keep. And therefore, no one had any hope of getting to heaven. It is hostility between you and God. The Jews hated the Gentiles because they didn't have the law. And the Gentiles hated the Jews because they had the law. They were just weird. They were. They were weird with all their customs and habits and do this and don't do that. And Jesus abolished the law by fulfilling the law. He kept the law. Once and for all, we've got to get it through our heads. We cannot get to God by works, but only by grace. Jesus abolished the law as a way of getting to God. He didn't abolish the law. The law, we still want to be good, but that's in Christ. We do that in his power. It's not working our way to heaven. Verse 18 says, we have access to God, meaning we can go near to God in one spirit. The Trinity is spoken of right here in this verse. We have access to God through the blood of Jesus, and we go near through the Spirit. The Trinity is always at work to bring about the realities of God. I, 2 Corinthians 3 <clears throat> talks about the Spirit. And I'm just going to tell it to you rather than read it. It's a long passage, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 18. But it's talking about, and I'm sure you remember, when Moses would meet with God, when he had access with God, what would happen? His face would glow. Do you remember reading that? He would meet with God, and he would just, remember we talked about the glory of God is all of God's perfections. And sometimes it literally has a light attached to it you see god or see an angel or see jesus and there's glory a light but it's really the reflection of all of god's perfections and so moses would meet with god and be in the presence of all of his perfection and the light would be shining and it was so bright it made his own face shine and glow and the israelites said oh my gosh stop it put a veil over your face or something good grief man we can't handle that They couldn't handle it. That's amazing. I've actually pondered that many times, what that would be like to be with God. And you literally glowed. I mean, I I just can't even comprehend that. But there's something in 2 Corinthians 3 that tells us this. It talks about the ministry of Moses. And verse 8 says, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? The ministry of the spirit that dwells within us has more glory than the glory that Moses had. His glory faded. This is telling us the glory of the the ministry of the spirit and the glory is more than Moses because it never fades. The spirit never leads us, leaves us. We have more glory in us, abiding in us than Moses had when he just met with God on and off again. This is, that is so powerful. We have a glory that surpasses the glory of God that shone on Moses' face because of the magnificence of the Spirit. 
We need to ponder these things about our salvation, the magnificence of salvation by grace through faith, the magnificence of the power of the Holy Spirit and his indwelling us, giving us power to live a holy life, a power to walk in the good works that he prepared beforehand. And through the cross, both of us, Jew and Gentile, have access to God in the spirit. My question is this, do you approach God? You can approach God. Do you approach God? Or do you mistrust your good, good God? Do you turn away from him? Do you stand apart from him? There's no hostility, if you're a believer in Christ, between you and God. Now live like it. Live like you were the precious bride of Christ, the one promised to him, the one sealed with his spirit, the one lavished with grace, the one that's dearly loved. We should feel like we're constantly in the presence of God, not based on works, but because of his grace, because of his death, because of his blood. It's magnificent to ponder these things. Verses 19 through 22, let me just... Read these last verses. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You're of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. I, I, give, I go through these passages and I give you the definitions of the words. That's how I study the Bible. But there's another way I study it. And what I do after I've written the definitions out, then I rewrite the passage using the definitions. Does that make sense? And I also personalize it so that it's applicable to me. It's pertinent to me. It's pertinent to all of us, but... When I rewrite it using personal pronouns, it really uh, pops out in its meaning. So I want to read, rather than go through each of these verses with the definitions, I want to just read the whole passage with the definitions and the personal pronouns. Because it really hits home to me. So then, I am no longer a stranger and foreigner, not belonging to a family. Like a person who dwells temporarily in one place or another, never staying in one place. I am a fellow citizen along with other saints, that is other believers. I'm a member of the family of Christ, a member of Christ's household. That means something to me just to stop. I'm an only child. My parents are dead. I've been without parents since I was 27 years old. I'm 66. That's a long time. But I'm not without parents. I have a good, good father. I'm a member of the household of Jesus Christ. I have a family and I am dearly loved by my family, as are you. I am part of a superstructure built on the foundation of doctrine and instruction. That is truths from God's word, along with the 12 apostles and Paul and the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament ambassadors and teachers of God, of whom Jesus is the cornerstone, which sustains the entire structure of the church, uniting all of us into one mystical building. 
one body. It's a mystical thing spiritually. We are the body of Christ. We're going to talk about that next week. But we are the body of Christ. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. This, there is a building process where the structure of believers is being fitted and framed together and is increasingly growing into a pure, clean, sanctified temple of believers where God dwells in his spirit. Even me, yes, even me, even you, yes, you are being built together with other Christians into a spiritual temple, literally the dwelling place of God. Last week, we talked about this magnificent salvation. Today, we're talking about the new creation we are in Christ. But all of you are a new creation in Christ as well. And we are the church. We are literally the body of Christ. If anyone is ever to see God, it will be through his body. We are the fingers, the toes, the eyes, the nose, the appendix, the liver, the heart, the muscles, the back, the feet, the thighs. We all have our different parts. Are you, are you, I hate to say the word playing, but I'm going to use it. Playing your part. Are you living out your part in this body? We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. Laura says she doesn't want to be the thighs. Me either. We just won't be. In, in, in the name of Jesus, we will not be the big fat thighs. <laughs> oh, do you see this magnificent picture that's being painted for us in Ephesians? You're blessed. You're chosen. You're loved. You're adopted. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. You're filled with his spirit so that you can be a dwelling place of God. That actually gives more glory than the glory that Moses had when he met with God. People can see God in us. Or do they? That's my question. There's no hostility between us and God anymore. We can just walk right up to him and talk to him. Do you? Or do you kind of, I don't think I want to talk to God, kind of mad at him right now. Let's don't be mad at God. Did someone hurt you? Do you feel separated from God because of what someone did? Well, I can't trust God. My husband cheated on me. Well, I'm, nope, nope, I'm not going there, girlfriend. God can't be trusted. No, God can be trusted. Why? Because the word says so. People, not so much. God, oh yeah, he can be trusted. He's a good God with kind intentions. He loves us so much that he died for us. I want to end with the gospel. I'm assuming every single woman in this room is a believer in Christ. I, I always assumed that you're in church, so you've got to believe in Christ, right? But I've learned over the years because I've met women who told me years later, oh, in your Bible study, I, I received Jesus as my savior that day. Or in that retreat two years ago, when you shared the gospel, I received Christ. So I'm not going to assume everyone here knows the gospel. So I just want to Give it to you very clearly so that you that so that there's no mistake. Are you a new creature in Christ? That's my question to you. And the word says this. Somewhere. Where's the first one? Um, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're a sinner. We have that nature. Remember the rattlesnake nature. We're all worthy of death. We are rebellious creatures. 
And the penalty for that is death. And that doesn't mean like you're going to breathe the last breath and go, ugh, and and die. You're going to do that. But this is worse. It means eternal separation from God. You'll never see God. It's definitely a place of spiritual death, and you'll never overcome that. That's, That's really bad. But while we were sinners, Christ died for us. There's that part about loving you so much. While you were a sinner... He loved you so much that he died for you. He took the very place that you should have had, which is death and separation from God. He did that for you. And then we just read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. You cannot work your way to heaven, whether you French kiss or not. You're not getting there. But you can get there by grace through faith. Well, what does that mean? It means I believe I'm a sinner. It means I'm worthy of death, but it means I also decided to believe, you know what? Jesus died for me. Him hanging on the cross, that was for me. He died for me. He took all my sins on him, past, present, and future. And I'm going to believe that. And what happens when you believe that? Do what? We're credited with his righteousness. You become righteous, not because you're good, not because you haven't sinned, but by believing you are now Righteous, And you are a child of God. And you are a new creation. And you are now filled with the Holy Spirit. And you have power to overcome sin. You have power to walk in the good works that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And that's our magnificent salvation. And I just received Jesus at my table one night. There's no magic formula. There's not an aisle to walk. You don't have to pray with someone, although you certainly can. But I just bowed my head at my table one that night before I committed suicide and said, Jesus, I want you. I, I believe what you just said. And I, I want what you're giving me, which is eternal life. And I knew that I was saved. What I didn't know was how to live it out. But a couple of years later, that started happening. But have you ever done that? If you haven't, if you have any doubt, don't leave this place today without clarifying that. Come talk to me or, or get my number and we'll talk later if you don't want to be, you know, stand out in a crowd. But um, we have got to make that decision to put your faith in Christ. It's not about being good. It's about believing in the only one who really truly was good and offers us salvation by grace through faith. And nobody can do that for you. Laura and I talked, was it yesterday? It was day before yesterday. It was Sunday. Um, 32 years ago, she received Christ by herself at a, a, a youth camp and came from a household of unbelievers, mom and dad and brother and sister, who did not know Christ. And she brought Christ back to them in her own way. And, and it was not without great hardship. Um, I hope Laura tells her testimony someday. But... Um, um, oh my gosh, these testimonies. And the testimony is not Laura's story. It's just part of it. The testimony is Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians is all about. It is all about Jesus. It's all about God working through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we are so blessed. We are so magnificently blessed. I just 
um, want to end by saying thank you, God, that you were rich in mercy towards us. Thank you that even though we were dead in our sins, you made us alive together with Jesus. Thank you for giving us salvation by grace through faith and not works. Thank you for being our peace. Thank you for destroying the hostility between us and God. Thank you for making us one with yourself. Thank you for giving us access to yourself. Thank you that we're all members of your body. Thank you that we are the dwelling place of God in the spirit. Um, Let me just close this in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you for truth. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you that we're saved by grace. I thank you that we can pray and you hear us and that you will answer us. I um, just commit each of us now to you and pray that we would live out the truth that we've heard and that we would cling to it, that it would change us. And so, Lord, I just commit all of us to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We have about 15 minutes. Does anybody have any questions? Yes. I. That's a good question. Um, she asked, what version, and I read the New American Standard. And what is yours called, um, Susie? Mine, mine is the English Standard. English Standard Version is also good. And also the new King James. And King James is good. I just can't understand it. So, um, But they're the ones that are closest to the original Greek. Is NIV bad new international version? No, it's so easy to read and I love it. But if you want to be a real student of God's word, sometimes those words are not going to match the Greek. It will be close. You won't come away with something that's incorrect necessarily. Although sometimes there's some that I would say maybe aren't quite correct. But, um, but that's a really good question, Sherry. Oh, that's good. The word for word would be like, there was an explosion downtown. That was right. But the, the whole, bringing the whole meaning together is, is saying what it, what, what it was. What to, word for word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense, yeah. Bobby? Word, word for word, yes, phrase by phrase is the way that. So the difference is... Uh, the in the New American Standard and the one more time I can't I don't ESV English Standard Version um, is word for word translation and the others are phrase by phrase translation so you're going to come close and it's not bad and don't go out and buy a new Bible if you don't have one but you want to look you can go online Bible Hub um, Blue Letter Bible some of those. Uh, things you can Google and just call up all the versions, all the versions. It is, Laura said, it's good to read in different versions, and that's so true. I, I like it. I think the New Living is good, Vicki. Um, I don't think at all you're going to get word for word. And I, thi- I think it's good, if as a new believer, I think it's really great to hand out. Because um, it's so easy to understand, and I think it helps us live it out because it's just simple. But um, I don't think it it has translated it always correct. But it's good. It's just not great. You 
they do say the same thing. You're not going to, I don't think you're going to get error. Let's just say that and get, be clear. You're not going to get error, but sometimes you're ver- it can be off a little bit. You're going to miss the depth of the reality of things. Yes. Yes. She's, and I like the amplified. Sherry's talking about the amplified. And so the amplified expands it. You, that, those last few verses that I rewrote and read to you guys, that's like an amplified version because I just used every definition and every word. That would be an example of the amplified. Um, so the amplified's not bad. It gives, I think it, the amplified's good. It, I get a little lost in it sometimes. It has so many words. Hmm. Okay. I justify the amount of money a year I spend on Amazon Yeah. I really like the brand new Bible every year. Ooh. Wow. Now that's a good idea. I've never heard. Sally says that she buys a new Bible every year and justifies the expense and always gets a different translation. And I will say this about that. It does make you stop and think. Like mine is just written, written. You know, I won't even open it. But it's just marked in and written. And I know it. I know which side of the page it's on. It's on the upper left-hand corner. You know, I can't remember the verse, but I know where it is. But see, that's also not good. Because then I'm not maybe thinking real deeply about the verse. So I think that's a great idea. And I will say this for those of us that are older. I've, I just love my Bible We just made a fire evacuation list, you know, just to have. And the first thing on the short version and along was my Bible. It's it's that treasure. I want it before I take my jewelry or my computer or my phone or anything. Um, I love this Bible. However, the downside of that is older women. This there's only one Bible to leave my four children, ten grandchildren, and two great grandchildren. So. You know, if that's important to you, I think it is important. Mark up other Bibles. Get other Bibles. And if you're younger, like some of you darlings in the back, um, you know, get a new Bible every few years, especially if you're marking in it. Look at her Bible. But that's your treasure, isn't it? I so appreciate that. Wow. I got mine recovered. If anybody wants, it was falling apart and taped and duct tape and all that. And I got it. I think this was $100. And they, um, you know, did that, see that pretty stuff. And they added, I love to write in those blank pages. They added like four or five blank pages in the front and in the back and new things. So if anybody's interested, I have the number for that. So that way it's, so that's good. Any other questions? Thank you. Yes. That's a really good point. Let me repeat that. So, in case you heard, couldn't hear her sweet voice, um, the enemy cannot read our thoughts. Um, he can plant memory thoughts into your mind that's that's his line of attack and how do we fight it with the word of god it's our sword of the spirit 
but he doesn't know your thoughts. He does observe you. So he knows he never tempts. He's never once tempted me to be a prostitute. Just, just, just saying, okay. Cause he knows that's not going to be what I'm going to do. I mean, I've never thought of robbing a bank or being a prostitute. He never wastes his time doing that. He does tempt me to be insecure, to be fearful. He, he watches me. He knows what will get me every single time. And um, what were you going to say, Miss Pat? Well, the enemy cannot read our thoughts, but he can hear us. So sometimes it's important to pray I, Yes. She says the enemy cannot read our thoughts, but it is important to pray out loud. I, if you feel, listen, this is very powerful. This, it's one of the most powerful things I could ever tell you to do. Sometimes do you feel just that anxiety and you just, oh, you know, you're just, you just want to fall apart or you're just, you, you don't even know what is happening. It's just, and, and maybe you do know what's happening, but sometimes there's just, there's absolutely no reason for it. You just feel so anxious and frustrated and down. And that could be oppression from the enemy. He is just bearing down. This warfare is now in your realm on top of your head, so to speak. Speak the word out loud. Pray out loud. Or speak the word out loud. If you can't get in your car, go to your bathroom, do, do some, even if you're whispering it. And what I do is just say the truth, whatever comes to my mind. Think, and I use thank you. We, y'all learned that when I did the prayer message. I, it changes it for me personally. But thank you that you're with me and for me and not against me. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. Thank you that greater is you and me than he that's in this world. Thank you that you're going to protect me. Thank you that your word is powerful. Thank you that I have the sword of the spirit. Thank you that I have the shield of faith and believe what I'm saying because it extinguishes every flaming missile of the evil one. And I'm telling you within five or 10 minutes of doing that out loud, there is no oppression. If that was a spiritual attack, he's gone. He hates the word of God. He hates it. Yes, praise music. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. What were you going to say, Miss Sherry? Um, how do I know that? Does he, I can't remember. He's not omniscient. God is omniscient. And is that the word? And knows all things. And the enemy is not. He is limited. He does observe us. I, he truly observes us. I believe firmly that he knows my parents were alcoholics. And I mean, he's watched your family, you know, are there demons assigned to your, I don't, I don't know how it all works, but there's definitely a system. Yes, Pat. gotquestions.org got g-o-t g-o-t got questions is it dot org or dot com dot org i love it do what it's an app got questions i have i have been using that for this study a lot and i have really found them to be short and to the point and very clear and and correct and so it's just really great to to use them, they're, I think, a good. Yes. That's a good scripture. Laura is reminding there's a seal. He, yes. Mm-hmm. 
that's another reason the enemy cannot read your thoughts. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He indwells us, mind, our, our whole person. So the enemy cannot penetrate that area. That's God's. But he can torment us from without. Well, Yes, and we're going to talk about the armor in chapter 6 so that we can really stand in this warfare. And I love it. I just I can't wait till we get to 6. Yes, Miss Vicki. Oh, little puppy. Power in us? Okay. Yes. He if if we obey him, that, that is giving him power, but he's not in us. He he can never indwell us. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, you could you could serve the enemy, absolutely. Uh, by No, once you now if you're a believer that's done. That's not even a possibility. You are sealed. If you don't have your guard, if you don't he have cannot get inside. It's like living in a house. It's the example Jesus used. Can a, um, he can oppress only from the outside, but he cannot indwell. Only the Spirit indwells. He has all the power. We learned last week that Jesus is has all the power. Over every name that is named and even Satan. Now, the spirits in us and the Trinity is equal. And so we have all the spirit, all the power of Jesus Christ in the spirit. So the enemy cannot dwell with the Holy Spirit. There's no possibility of that. We can um, act in a manner that's, we like him. He wants to be saved, I think. (laughs) Well, we've hit 11 o'clock, so... Thank you, girls.